welcomed the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material cultures in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, so this episode we're talking about glass um, and a few months ago Maddie and I caught up with Dr Kit Maxwell who is the curator of early modern glass at the amazing Corning Museum in New York and we chatted about his new book an upcoming exhibition there and we more generally talked about the evolution of glass making in the 18th century as well as its economic and aesthetic implications and also of course its connections to empire but before we go into the interview um, let's maybe chat about our own understanding of glass at this time and what we've been reading up on this week. Freya do you want to start us off? Sure so I feel like I say this every week, but I have to admit I don't know anything about 18th and 19th century glass, other than in this really one specific instance. So um, for me in my work, uh, what comes through is the stained glass windows um, of Plas Neweth, which was the home to the ladies of Langochlan, Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, where they lived together um, until the uh, early 19th century and this is the subject of a chapter of my book um, and these are amazing there are a kind of wonderful collage of pieces of fragmented and colored glass acquired by the women by various means so some of it is found in the ruined local abbey some is purchased from the birmingham glassmaker francis eggington and some is gifted to the women by local landowners whose coats of arms you see in the windows so the glass is sort of testament to the whole range of things that were important to the women, from their friendships with the landowners to their understanding of the Welsh landscape and its monuments. And so both of these things are incorporated into their home um, via the glass. That's such a fascinating piece, Freya. And like you, glass is something that I also I never really deal with. Um, yes, it must have been so important in shaping how people saw the other objects that I do research because glass made up you know the windows the mirrors and chandeliers that cast light over the silks that I all too readily will describe as shimmering or dazzling in my own research without necessarily considering where that light has come from or how that light is itself shaped by the material culture of the 18th and 19th centuries. I think one of the key ways that I've accidentally thought about glass is shop windows and the ways in which glass enabled spaces for display in the 18th century. So shop windows were these really vital spaces for performing material knowledge. Uh, you know, milliners stitched in shop windows to display their skill. And there's this kind of driving of consumer culture through this very visible type of object-centered marketing through shop window displays that developed through the 18th and 19th centuries. And none of that would have been possible without the development of glass. So I've been looking at this somewhat surprising history um, and this kind of builds on what you're saying about windows, Serena. So I've been looking at people writing on glass so this is a practice that happened throughout the 18th century in particular, but, you know, still continues throughout the 19th century and even to today. 
And it's surprising not only, as you might expect, because, you know, writing on such a brittle surface brings all sorts of logistical challenges, but also because of the sorts of things that people would write. So in the 1730s, an anonymous author went around the city of London collecting examples of graffiti that were written on walls and windows, sites like taverns, brothels and some private houses. And he published them in this book that's called The Merry Thought or The Glass Window and Bog House Miscellany. And this is full of graffiti that to a modern reader gives a sort of you know, a tantalising snapshot into the life of the city and its really varied inhabitants. So there are a few poems about things like sex workers, um, arguments between friends and lovers quarrels, but there's also some more sort of explicitly political messages and calls for revolution. But what I find really interesting is that unlike today, graffiti was not illegal and actually it was practiced by anyone and everyone uh, from duchesses down to um, people like the inmates of a debtor's prison. And it was even used in advertising. So this is a poem that is carved, was carved into the window of a watchmaker's on Fleet Street in London. Uh, and it's warning potential customers that they must pay their bills in full. So it says, here time is bought and sold. Tis plain, my friend, my clocks and watches show what I intend. For you I time correct, my time I spend. By time I live, but not one inch will lend, except you pay the ready down or send. I trust no time unless the times do mend. I love this idea that you would read that before you entered into the shop. Um, so you knew you had to had to make your bills. I think it's brilliant. I have to admit, I haven't really thought so much about writing on glass in terms of graffiti but I do think it's amazing to think about the lasting legacy of that on something like a window pane but I think it also speaks to this ubiquitous nature of glass too and I suppose actually when I really start to think about this practice of writing on glass it's actually really linked to one of the most impressive and, and difficult glass techniques which is actually called diamond engraving or diamond point engraving and that was really reserved for very much the most elite class. It was incredibly expensive and a really painstaking process. So essentially it evolved, it sort of involved scratching a decoration freehand onto the surface of a glass using a tiny small splinter of diamond that was mounted onto the top and the tip of wooden stick. But of course, you know, the graver had to avoid scratching too deeply, otherwise it would cause the glass to crack. So incredibly difficult um, uh, to get right. And actually the technique was really introduced by the Venetians in the 16th century, but then it's mastered across the the continent, but especially by the Dutch in the 17th and 18th centuries. And there are some incredible engraved glass goblets that now exist um, from that time, particularly in the Netherlands, which were used as part of a social kind of ceremony of toasts and banquets. And quite often they, this engraving on the glass often spelled out illicit political gestures or forbidden love, for example, between two men, really demonstrating, I think, how closely linked these objects were to the societies in which they circulated. And yes, they were functional for glasses, but they also have this incredible significance about this cultural moment as well. So first and foremost, welcome Kit. 
Thank you. Uh, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Uh, so before we dive into talking about your uh, upcoming exhibition and its beautiful accompanying book, uh, which is called In Sparkling Company, Reflections on Glass in the 18th Century uh, British World, I wonder if you can um, just briefly say something about your role at the Corning Museum and what led you to put this project together. Yeah, I joined the, the Corning Museum of Glass in 2016. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not a US um, citizen. I moved from the UK. Um, and really, I had a great interest in the 18th century always. That's been my area of focus, but not so much experience with glass. I think like many um, museum curators or specialists in material culture of this period, glass is somewhat elusive in our uh, studies. And this exhibition and the book really came about through my own quest to better understand how glass fitted into this period, which we all know was so rich in material culture and innovation as well. So it's been a bit of a, a voyage of discovery for me too, and certainly something that is uh, still ongoing. I think something we're really excited about with this exhibition and the accompanying book is the focus on glass within both decorative arts studies, but then also wider material culture studies. So it's really giving it its kind of cultural significance and seeing it in this wider context as, an, as a type of material that's really been very much overlooked, I think. Before we dive into talking in more detail, I think we need to maybe set a bit of historical context. So <laughs> this is quite a basic question, but I guess my first sort of jumping off point is what is happening to glass in the 18th century? Is it being uh, manufactured in new ways compared to earlier centuries? But also how is it being used? What's it being made into and where and how is it being sort of interacted with or encountered? That's a really interesting question. And yes, it, the 18th century was a, a really glassy moment for Britain. Um, there was an age-old quest among European glassmakers to, to create a, a colourless glass that emulated rock crystal. Rock crystal was kind of the benchmark of glassmaking. And we still use the term crystal today to talk about the, the best, clearest, heaviest type of glass. And for the longest time, from the 15th century onwards, the, the glass the glass makers of Murano in Venice had led the market, producing a, a very finely blown, so very thin, almost colourless type of glass called Cristallo, so named directly after rock crystal. And then in the late 17th century, the British perfected a new formula for making a colourless glass using lead oxide, quite a high percentage of lead oxide. And this combined with a rapidly expanding market through their growing British colonies, really resulted in a golden age of uh, glass making. This lead oxide made the glass particularly heavy, particularly clear, but also highly refractive. So it, it sparkled and, and the material quality of it was very, very appealing. And it was robust enough to transport, whereas the Venetian Cristallo was, was less so. Um, we also have concurrent developments in plate glass production, which is useful because after the Great Fire of London, there was a huge building boom and this was the age of the sash window, so no longer were there these small casement windows with little kind of quarries, sort of uh, diamond shapes of glass, but big panes of glass were required. And also we see it's the, 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 the age of the diamond, the, the colourless diamond becomes um, the most privileged of precious stones. And Hannah Green writes a bit about this in the Beaumont. And lead glass can be cut, it's soft, the lead makes the glass soft enough for really intricate cutting, so it emulates this this um, precious stone as well. 
There's something really fascinating there, isn't there, about vision, I guess, uh, in, in combination with glass and the idea of being able to see through something. And also, I know we're going to come on to talk about mirrors and the sort of reflective surface as well, which is, is fascinating. And you can just imagine all of those materials glistening under candlelight to me, very kind of sociable scenes that often we think of or typically historians think of when we think of the 18th century. Um, and that was something I think that comes across well in the book and presumably also the exhibition, this link between glass and politeness. And you talk about politeness as part of a performative nature of the 18th century. So could you perhaps say maybe a little bit more on what politeness is in the 18th century and what this has to do with glass as material? I think that's a, a, it's a super interesting connection and I came upon it really by happenstance, reading through 18th century literature, particularly manuals of civility. And I noticed that the terms polished and polite were used interchangeably. And then reading more broadly, I, I found that too. Uh, reading the diaries of Fanny Burney, she at one point exclaims that nothing is to be that has been, everything is to be new, polished and highly finished. And she's reflecting um, on modernity so that this notion of polish, this notion of politeness, all kind of conflates into the sense of modernity that prevailed, I think, in the 18th century. Well, one thing that I uh, wanted to pick you up on there, which I, I think is, is sort of fascinating, you're making this connection between um, the sort of the new materiality of glass in the 18th century and the sort of the technical, the chemical, the manufacturing developments. Um, but also, I guess, the development in vocabulary around glass as a material, but also um, around elite culture in general and how there's these sort of interesting parallels, if not direct links, made between ideas of politeness and then glass as sort of a material that actually sneaks into the vocabulary of, of people like Francis Burney, which is, which is really, really interesting. Something that Caroline and I are really keen to talk about is the digital recreation that you have made or been part of making. Caroline, I don't know if you want to say something a bit more about this. Well, I suppose just mm -hmm. on this idea of politeness or the fact that glass becomes embedded within elite society, I think something that really shines through with that, haha, <laughs> shines through, but this idea of, of paintings and portraits and the people being captured in front of the mirrors or the sash windows or glittering glass tablewares. So it really, it seems like glass sort of seeps in and almost overtakes the interior much more than we necessarily think about consciously, I think. And do you think that really happens? And are there any key examples of rooms or interiors where glass is sort of center stage, as it were? Absolutely. I mean, politeness was, I guess, a way of life. And it wasn't purely behavioral. It was the way in which the way in which you lived. It's what you wore, how you spoke, what you owned. It was demonstrative. There were many ways that politeness manifested itself and material possessions were a key part of being polite, of this concept. And I suppose one of the most remarkable manifestations of this, and glass was so ideally suited because it too was a British glass, was a, a modern material. So it embodied all the values of politeness in this age of when I think society was in this state of self-conscious coalescence, the new money coming from overseas trade and so on, it wasn't just the landed aristocracy that, that held the, the power or made up the elite. So glass really was an essential accessory. And one of the most powerful, I think, statements to this end was the Northumberland House glass drawing room, um, which was designed for the first you can of Northumberland by Robert Adam in 1775 for that London residence Northumberland House which used to stand just um, on the corner of Trafalgar Square 
And the most extraordinary thing about this room is not just the eight enormous cast plate glass uh, mirrors that were imported from Saint-Gobain in Paris, but the whole room from dado to architrave was lined in reverse spangled, sort of glittering red glass panels um, interspersed with green glass columns, pilasters rather. It's, it's remarkable because it's exceptional, it, but the Duke had um, invested in a plate glass manufactory. And you can imagine that this might have been a sort of marketing suite, as it were, for the products of this quite innovative way of making large plates of glass. So they were, they were part of London's Beaumont. Um, unfortunately, the Duchess died very soon after the room was completed and we have few accounts, uh, or we have no accounts of it uh, in use, um, but the effect must have been extraordinary. But it was demolished in 1875 as the house was knocked down and the, the panels were crated up and ended up at the V&A. And one section is on display now in the British galleries. Another section has just been installed in Dundee. And for the exhibition, we're borrowing the remaining parts from storage. They're being conserved. Also uniting them with Adam's three original coloured design drawings from the Sir John Sainz Museum. And we have embarked over the last couple of years on a virtual reality reconstruction of this room. Um, so the visitor to the exhibition that also be made available online can experience this room in daylight and in candlelight and get a sense of, of well, the theatrical effect of being in this polished and polite interior. That's fascinating talking about the sort of different times of day and, and the use of light and something that struck me while you're talking there is about sort of earlier glass production being very much focused on the clarity of glass and it being colourless. And what you're talking about here is a sort of showroom of all the technical innovations. And I wonder if you can say something a bit more about how colour is working in that space. That's quite remarkable. And I imagine sort of busy effect of not only sort of shimmering surfaces and um, all the sort of reflections from the, the light, especially if it was by candlelight, but actually how the, the colours themselves are working in that space. Was it difficult to make different coloured glass and did they hold particular meanings? This room is not a typical Adam room by any stretch. It's, it's certainly uh, derived from the kind of more Baroque idiom of the Hall of Mirrors. And the, the red glass, the, spa the spang reverse spangled red glass, I think is supposed to imitate porphyry, British porphyry. So there is this kind of richness. Unfortunately, the original red glass was destroyed. And so we have now a 1950s recreation of it and it's stained. Um, we suspect that that was probably the case for the original plate glass too. It wasn't inherently coloured, but stained on the reverse, along with the spangles. But all of glass, really, glass production in the 17th century emanated from alchemy. Um, glass was, the furnaces were considered to emulate the, the melting temperatures of the Earth's core. So there was this fascination with glass and how it related to metallurgy and the arcanum and so on. And colour, the development, the use of colour was particularly associated with that. Yes, I think that's fascinating and something we don't think about so much today, this constant link between the arts and the sciences and glass and material and the use of that within these kind of more scientific discoveries at this point is really interesting. And it's just wonderful thinking of that room as really an emblem of their self-fashioning, but also this sort of epitome of what glass could be at this point as this modern emblem really representing a very particular type of elite. And that's a very small percentage of the population as well. I mean, when you go to a museum, you the, the, the impression is that everyone in the olden days lived with things like this. But in reality, it's probably no more than three or five percent of the population. And the, the Duke and Duchess had to import their 
actual mirror glass from France, from the French Royal Factory. So that showed in incredible international connections as well. It was staggering, staggering. Um, so we're talking, you know, we've talked about glass as being sort of part of the material fabric of the elite home, the sash windows, maybe the chandeliers, the table there, um, the mirrors on the walls, that kind of thing. But your exhibition and the book are really clear on this idea that we can't look exclusively at this aspect of glass history without also looking at how the material was implicated in wider global trade networks, but in particular networks that supported um, and benefited directly from the slave trade. So can you say something further about, I guess, glass in a global and particular colonial context and why we need to be addressing these histories more and more, particularly in a museum space? Yeah, it's a fascinating and, of course, incredibly complex um, topic and there are so many ways to approach it. So my, my first approach was looking at the types of glass that we have in our collection, most of which are tableware and most of which tableware designed for the dessert, which was an increasingly popular part of formal dining in the 18th century and entirely dependent, of course, on the availability of sugar to make sweet confectionaries. And that came from British plantations in North America and the Caribbean. And so there is this direct correlation between the presence of these new designs in, in dessert tableware and the exploitation of enslaved Africans. It's completely reasonable and accurate to say that these things wouldn't have existed without that exploitation and trade network. But then also the ingredients to glass. Glass is of, of, of silica, so the sand, and then a, an alkali flux, which lowers the melting temperature of, of the silica. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, particularly for the production of lead glass, but also for window glass, saltpeter was, was used as the flux, it's potassium nitrate. It occurs naturally. By the end of the 18th century, the British were controlling 70% of the global saltpeter trade, most of which came from the lands that they took in India, in Bengal, specifically in, in 1757. And so, again, the, the flowering of the British glass industry is inextricably bound with this trade um, and the, and the militarisation of the East India Company. Does that change how you approach the display of objects in a museum space? Obviously, in the accompanying book, you go into quite a lot of depth and there's a lot of room to, to draw out these um, really, like, as you say, complex narratives. But in terms of actually displaying an object in a museum, how do you go about explaining those histories? Yeah, that's, that's something we're thinking a good deal about now. In, in, in truth, the galleries at Corning were installed uh, in their presence at the Historic Galleries about 20 years ago. So we are at the beginning of a major rethink of how to, how to reinterpret these objects. Um, and that is certainly a question that we're thinking about very closely. To what extent? So the consumers in the 18th century would have been very aware that sugar came from the Caribbean and that sugar was produced by enslaved Africans. To what extent consumers were aware that the glass was made using saltpetre from India is, is a little more complex. Certainly the glass houses were located right next to the saltpetre warehouses along the River Thames, but how much the alchemy was known to the general consumer. But I think more to the point is also that now is the time to move away and distance ourselves from what has been previously been the focus within art history or decorative art studies or kind of more connoisseurial approaches to the decorative arts, particularly objects like ceramics or glass, which focus more on these aesthetic qualities or the elite class and the use and actually really 
complicate those narratives and ask those questions and then by doing that try and perhaps change that or echo that somehow in the interpretation in the gallery space. I think it's the, the vessel itself, it's the sugar, but then there are also narratives in terms of the abolition movement that was happening and glass was something that was key to that uh, for some and that really shone through for me and I think it was Kerry Sinanen's Mm. Uh, chapter in the book which is on slavery and glass looking at tropes of race and reflection and some very um really hard-hitting but incredibly important scholarship about the role of glass beads essentially as currency for trade for human life and us positioning in the way in which you have positioned glass within this wider historical context i think is really paving the way for something really quite special as we move forward within glass history and decorative arts history more generally that's that's fascinating that you talk about the glass beads as sort of tradable objects and i wanted to ask really about you know we're talking about these very big sheets of glass or they're using these really sort of exquisite very very decorative sort of exclusive objects and can you say anything about how glass was being encountered if at all by people who weren't in the top three percent of society is this an, a material that is coming into regular contact with people in the sort of lower classes I read to you uh, um, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol for my kind of starting point on this, which was published in 1848, and it's one of my favourite books. I don't need to wait for Christmas to read it, um, but one of my favourite scenes is the, the Cratchit's Christmas dinner. Um, Bob Cratchit is the, the bookkeeper for Ebenezer Scrooge. He's very low paid, overworked, cheerful, has a large family though, supports them uh, in a small house in Camden. His daughter is uh, apprenticed to a milliner and I think his son is going to follow him into the city. So they're, they're poor, but respectable. I, I guess in my mind, I equate it to a museum curator in London today. Um, but there's a description of, of this, the family gathering around the fire to drink uh, some punch. And Dickens mentions that at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup with a broken handle, which shows that still, you know, these battered, the, I mean, the custard cup would have come from, a, a would probably be made in the 18th century for use in the dessert, part of a much larger set, but was still a prized possession in, in, a, in a lower middle class or administrative class family. So of course you also needed the, the ability to uh, put, the, put these vessels to their intended use. So you need to be able to afford the confectionery or the wine or whatever it was they're intended to hold and then store them safely. You need the space to store them and to clean them as well. It's much easier to, to have a, a ceramic uh, tankard or, or pewter. Um, doesn't require so much cleaning. So yeah, I think, I think really until the age of industrialization and the mass production of, of glass, it probably was out of the reach of most people. But it's interesting, Caroline, I, you mentioned earlier about the, the Northumberland House being part of the, the self-fashioning of the, the Duke and Duchess. And I also think about how glass was used by colonialists as well, who might not have been part of the, the elite 3%, but what, how did glass forge colonial identities? We have records of British lead glass being in Jamaica already at the end of the 17th century when it was still a very, very new material. And what did it mean as part of the colonising process or the British identity beyond Great Britain? Just shows us so much more perhaps to say. So we've reached the point in the podcast where we ask our guests to bring along an object or artwork of particular interest. So Kit, can you describe for us what object you brought along and maybe say something about where it sits in the exhibition or in your book? And for listeners at home, we'll be putting up a picture of this onto our social media account. But this is a pair of reversed painted 
uh, mirrors. The story of these, these objects is really quite fascinating. And this is a great moment for the study of this kind of glass painting. But essentially, these mirrors were produced in Britain in the 18th century and were exported by the British India Company to China, where Chinese craftsmen scraped off the, the silvering, as it were, from the back and replaced it, substituted it with painted designs, the landscapes here. Um, one mirror we see a man and a woman sitting in a, a garden overlooking a lake. The woman is reading and the man is smoking an opium pipe. And in the other, we see two women in a garden, one cradling a, a newborn, presumably boy, surrounded by auspicious symbols of peonies and, and pheasants. And these are fascinating on so many levels, not only the oceanic footprint that these mirrors incurred, transported to Canton and back, it could have taken them two years. They would have cost an enormous amount of money back in, in the UK, where they were popular features in, in sort of elite interiors, along with Chinese wallpaper, for example. But the cost of two, a pair of mirrors like this could exceed the cost of acquiring and installing an entire room of uh, Chinese wallpaper. And I think it's particularly interesting. We can kind of read, we can decode some of the auspicious symbols in these pictures, the, the scholar's rock, the pheasant, the peony. We can also identify the cities as Manchu, part of the Qing dynasty ruling elite. The, the man in the left, on the left-hand side, he wears a cap, which distinguishes him as a, a high-ranking officer of the court. But also he is smoking an opium pipe, which alludes to a really a nefarious part of Britain's trade with China during this period in that the major export from China for the British was tea. But the Chinese had very little interest in, in European manufactured goods. They really only wanted silver in exchange for tea. The British didn't care for that much. They wanted to keep the silver for themselves. So instead, they generated an opium addiction by flooding China with illegally with opium grown in Bengal stimulated such an epidemic that the Chinese were paying the British in silver for the opium. And then the, the British could then use this, this silver to buy tea. And so these idealized scenes, which really uh, were so popular among the British elite at the time, hinted a much, much darker side to uh, Britain's relationship with China during this period. And do you know anything about these particular objects, who owned them or who might have owned them and where they would have been hung? We don't, and I'm very interested about um, the coincidence between reverse painted mirrors and Chinese wallpaper and to what extent they appeared in the same households. This is, this is um, kind of new research that's ongoing. There are a lot of people working in this field at the moment, so I hope we can say more um, in due course. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful, and I think, as you rightly say, it's, it's only by confronting these hidden, or not so hidden perhaps, um, other narratives that we can really understand everything and really see the bigger picture with something as simple as this which you could look at and just think it's a lovely kind of scene and, and see it as something just much more pleasing but actually I think there's so much more there. P particularly when you, I mean here you, we're just looking at them on the screen but in person you then have a, a European reflection imposed on the scene as well. well. We look forward to hearing more about that research, maybe you can come back on the podcast in a few Thank months you. when, you've, when <laughs> you've done more work on this and we'll, we'll have an update. Um, so that's all that we have time for today. Thank you so much, Kit, for this fascinating discussion. Um, for listeners at home, uh, are you able to quickly tell us when and where uh, we can see the exhibition and also details of the book, which I believe is already for sale? The book is for sale. You can find it at the Corning Museum website in the shop section. And if you are ordering it from outside the United States, you can avoid the shipping cost by entering the code ISC, 
it's in, in sparkling company and that the shipping costs will be deducted at the last stages of checkout. Um, the exhibition will open in hopefully in May 2021 and will run through till January 2022 and there will be loans from all across the US and from many UK institutions as well. been listening to the traveling sisterhood of art historians podcast don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram and to subscribe